turn our attention to the reading of God's word and then to the attention of the love of Jesus. There are four passages we're going to be looking at this morning. Each of them pertain to the love of God. John 3.16, Romans 5, 6 through 8, 1 John 4, 9 through 10, and Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. If you have, have a Bible or if you just want to listen, since we're going to be bouncing around through three different, four different texts in the New Testament, that would be great. So hear the reading of God's words. First, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Romans 5, 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Lastly, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It's a simple question. How is the love of Jesus light? How is the love of Jesus light? If we're logical and we think like a child, the question just doesn't sound right, does it? A young developing mind will go, love is not light. Light is not love. It's simple. It's similar to what my youngest son asked my wife this week. Why do we celebrate the birth of baby Jesus? He isn't a baby anymore. He's right. Logically, it doesn't make sense. But we understand that there is a connection between love and light. And it begs the question, how is Jesus' love light? At its very basic level, love is the very reason Jesus came. I mean, consider the most famous verse in modern America in the Bible. For God so loved the world. God loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So Jesus' incarnation, his coming to earth, being born of a virgin, was because he loved but we know that Jesus' love goes beyond just this reason. It goes deeper and it shines brighter. Jesus' love is different than the way we typically think of love. And we must study this way of love. In fact, what I want you to understand is that the love of Jesus is so antithetical to the way the world so often displays love. More often than not, the love seen displayed in the world can be categorized in either one of two ways. And they're fun little sayings, and you, you can memorize these. These are not the only ways. But the way that the world often displays love in the world is either floppy or sloppy. Here's what I mean. In 2016, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the person who played Hamilton in the great play Hamilton, gave a speech at the Tony Awards that perfectly perfectly captures the floppy love on display in the world. This is what he said at the Tonys. He says, we live through times when hate and fear seem stronger. 
We rise and fall in light from dying embers. Remembrances that hope and love last longer. And love is love, is love, is love, is love, is love. Love is love. What he's saying is love is known by love. Love is love. This phrase has now gone onto posters that sit in front of people's yards that read like religious creeds. I believe that love is love. I think I understand what he's getting at. That love is this highest ethic. That it's a God in and of itself. The way that Christians say God is love. But such reasoning is troubling. It's floppy. He wants anyone who loves to be protected and cherished. But it begs the question, who gets to decide when one love is more important than the other? Or when one love is evil and the other is not? The love that he espouses, a love that is so often embraced in the world, is a floppy love. It's relative. It has no backbone. Yet this is the love so espoused in the world. Jesus' love is not floppy. But the love also we see in the world is a sloppy kind of love. And the sloppy kind of love is the love that is seen on Hallmark daytime movies. I realize, men, that oftentimes we just check out when we hear this. But this sloppy love is often espoused in the world. It's the kind of love that overwhelms you with affection and kisses and hugs and cheesy dates. It's sloppy because there's too much kissing, too much hugging, and too much snuggling. I do love those things, but if you're... If I'm being honest with you, I can get really claustrophobic really fast. And such love is sloppy. Too much is just gross. But this kind of love is not defined by Jesus. Jesus' love is neither floppy or sloppy. Jesus' love is significant, meaningful, rooted, and profound. Jesus' love is indeed light. This morning, I want to study the love of Jesus, that it might be light for you. And there's three aspects of Jesus' love that I want to touch on, that it might indeed be light to you. That it might reveal truths about God and about yourself. That it might comfort you in the midst of your afflictions. That it might be a beautiful light in the midst of this dark world. So there are three aspects of Jesus' Jesus' love that I want to highlight, and there certainly could be more, but there's just three that I want to highlight today that you might see it as significant, that it might be light to you. First, the first aspect of Jesus' love that I want to highlight to you is this reality of Jesus' love. Jesus' love is gracious. It's not floppy. It's not sloppy. It's gracious. Look at with me at Romans 5 again. This is what Paul says about the love of God and of Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Here we have a profound reality of the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus was not dependent on our love of him. Or because Jesus looked into the future and saw that one day we would believe. The love of Jesus comes to us while we were still sinners. It's a love that comes though you were thumbing your nose at God and doing what you wanted to do. It's a love that comes when you blatantly disobeyed him. It's a love that comes even when you are disrespecting the kingship of God and his lordship. 
It's a love that comes even when you claim that you yourself are the center of the universe. It's a love in spite of us. It's a love that is gracious. You must understand that grace is the furthest thing from floppy. Grace is unmerited favor, but grace implies truth. Not a hiding from reality, not a hiding from sin. It's not sweeping sin under the rug. It's an acknowledgement of the wrongdoing, and it's a forgiving it nevertheless. Paul tells us in Romans 5 that the love of Jesus comes to us while we were still sinners. The love is not dependent on us, but it's dependent on his dying. This is why Paul said Christ died for us. The love of God that comes to us while we were sinners is conditional. But the conditions aren't meant by you or me. It's conditioned upon his obedience. That Jesus loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength in his neighbor as himself. It's a love that's dependent on him going to the cross and bearing upon himself the curse of sin. It's conditioned on Jesus and Jesus alone. I have this one professor, and I bring him up all the time, but I'm telling you, every time I sat with this professor, I felt like I learned something. And I'll never forget one of the stories he taught about the unconditional reality of the love of God. He surprised me and my classmates one day, and he goes, if I hear one more sermon where a preacher gets up and says, the love of God is unconditional, I'm going to stand up in the middle of the sermon and say, that is not true. You can imagine to the preachers or soon-to-be preachers in the room who are like, what? You're going to rebuke a preacher who says that the love of God is unconditional? And he says, yes, I will do it. And he always had these really fun sayings. He goes, because the truth of the love of God is it's always conditioned on something. The love of God is always conditioned on Jesus' life and Jesus' death. And Jesus' resurrection. So if I hear that the love of God is unconditional, I'm going to rip my clothes off and call out that pastor. Because it's just not true. You see, grace always acknowledges the reality of sin. It's not this loosey-goosey, floppy, I love you just the way you are. It's conditioned on Jesus. And because it's conditioned on Jesus, and then his love goes to us, even while we were sinners, guess what his love is? It's gracious. You see, it's much more significant than this floppy love that the world gives. It's not relative. It's meaningful. It's significant. And let me tell you something. This is good news for us, church. Because each and every one of us, when we wake up in the morning, oftentimes we say, how can I build my kingdom? And we wake up, thumb our nose at God, and yet his love for us is still there. It's gracious. That is significant. That is light. It doesn't hide things. It brings truth. But yet it's so profound. Jesus' love is light. And it's light because it's gracious. But Jesus' love is not only light because it's gracious. Jesus' love is light because it's propitious. Secondly, Jesus' love is propitious. Now, you might be sitting there going, propitious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lost me on that one, bud. 
How do you even spell that? You got this little fill in the blank. How do we spell propitious? We don't even have the text anymore. You can't see it. If you look at 1 John, you can see the word propitiation. But here's how it's spelled propitious. So that you're not wondering, what does this even mean? How do I even understand it? And how do I even know that propitious is light to me? Here's how you spell propitious. P-R-O-P-I-T-I-O-U-S. Propitious. There you go. That's how you spell it. But how do we understand it? And how do we connect it to the love? Of Jesus. Well, consider, my friends, the, the words of the Apostle John in his letter to the church. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Like the Apostle Paul in Romans, John in his letter sees in Jesus a certain type of love. And the love he sees in Jesus is a propitious kind of love. Now what propitiation is, is this. It's simply defined this way. Propitiation is a sacrificial offering that averts wrath. Propitiation is a sacrificial offering that averts the wrath of God. So here's what John is telling us. It tells us that God's love willingly allowed the wrath of God to go upon himself. To place the wrath of himself on himself and away from you. The wrath goes to Jesus and not to you. Now trust me when I say this. The wrath of God is not a popular subject in church these days. People don't like to hear about a vengeful God punishing sinners. But we must be careful to not throw away the wrath of God. Listen to what one scholar, Leon Morris, says of the wrath of God. And we must take to heart these words. If there is no wrath, there is no salvation. If God does not take action against sinners, then sinners are in no danger and do not need salvation. Only when we take seriously the wrath of God against sinners do we put real meaning into the salvation that Christ brought on Calvary. The idea that God is not angry with sinners belongs neither to the Old Testament nor the New Testament. It is neither Jewish or Christian. It is an alien intrusion from the Greek world of thought. For healthy religion, we need the concept of a God who is ultimately opposed to evil and who takes action against it. And this is what God does to himself. Jesus takes action by directing the wrath of God to himself and away from you. This is propitiation. This is a propitious love. You know, the opposite of a Hallmark movie in our world today would be something akin to a shoot-em-up movie, a Western, or a movie connected to war. And one of my favorite shoot-em-up movies is the movie Man on Fire. I can get going watching this movie. Now, it's an old movie. It's probably about 20 years old. But in, in essence, let me create the picture and sorry if I ruined this for some of you guys. And I don't know if this is a movie that you need to go out and see. But Denzel Washington plays a character named Creasy in this movie. And he is awesome in it. I love Denzel. He is awesome. Denzel plays this character named Creasy. And he's been hired as a bodyguard to watch a wealthy individual's daughter. This daughter, though, eventually gets kidnapped by a Mexican mobster. And Creasy then goes out of his way to find where this daughter is. And he does some banging up, shooting him up. It's unbelievable. He's the man. But at the end of the story, this is what Denzel does. He realizes 
The only way that that little girl is going to come back to her family is if he gives up his life. And the scene at the end of the movie has him walking across this bridge. And almost every time, I know it's coming, and every time I see it, I, 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 I start to tear up. And I go, oh, he's giving himself up for this little girl. And it's this beautiful sacrificial moment. And he goes over the bridge, and she goes over the bridge, and they meet at the bridge, they hug, but then he goes to the monsters, and she goes home free. Ooh, it's a powerful moment. But guess what? This doesn't even begin to describe the power of the cross and the propitious reality that comes on the cross. It does describe the sacrificial reality, but it's nowhere close to what Jesus does on the cross in a propitious manner. I don't even know how to describe it. There's not a story that's in this world that describes it as far as I know that. That story comes close. But we must see in Jesus that he takes upon himself the anger that God has towards our sin and he puts it on Jesus. And Jesus hangs on the cross and utters these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back upon me and placed upon me this pain? It's because sin needs to be paid for. And the wrath needs to be averted towards God's people. This is the love of Jesus. So many of us can live our lives, especially if we've done a big sin in our lives, and we've been a Christian, and when we, we, we sin a big life, we're like, oh gosh, there's no way that God's going because if my kids did anything remotely like this, the anger that I would have toward them would be profound. But when we understand that Jesus' love is propitious, we understand that that wrath that he has towards even our most grotesque sins has been satisfied. And we can come into the presence of our God and not just come scared. We actually can look at our God and say, Father. This is what our propitious love of God does. It enables us to draw intimately into God, not fearing his wrath. Jesus' love is propitious, and this, my friends, is significant. This is light. Jesus' love is propitious. It's gracious. The last way Jesus' love is life-giving. And it is this life-giving love that gives us light. Consider the last text that I've referred to you, Ephesians chapter 2. And I just want to draw on two verses, verses 4 and 5. Certainly 6 and 7 are worthy verses to consider, but for the sake of time, let's just consider verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Paul says it very plainly. His love is life-giving. Jesus' gracious love is life-giving. We were dead, but now we are alive. It's a love that gives us life. Now, what does this mean? How are we to understand this? Because, again, going back to our childhood mind, I was never dead. <laughs> I was alive. I, I, I wasn't, and then I was alive, and I wasn't dead. So how do we understand this dead in our trespasses? Well, Paul is certainly drawing on a spiritual reality, a spiritual death, 
A death that would eventually meet an eternal death. But here Paul is saying you were dead in your sins, but now God's love has made you alive. And so first, this must mean a spiritual birth. It's a spiritual birth. John 3.16, do you know the context in which John 3.16 was shared? It was between Jesus and Nicodemus. And at the beginning of this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, Jesus says, if you want to go into the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And Nicodemus struggled with this reality with Jesus. How, how can a man enter into his mother's womb again and be born again? And Jesus says, you silly person. You don't enter into, a, you don't en enter into your mother's womb again. You must be born of the water and of the spirit. It's a spiritual birth. And so at first, what, what, what is being referred to here is a spiritual rebirth. We're dead in our sins. We can't in our own choose God. We can't move to God. We're dead. A dead person does nothing. But God in his love moves towards us and gives us life. That, my friends, is profound love. It's gracious and it gives us life. What does this look like in the Christian life? I think it's really important to understand what this means. It doesn't mean that you're now someone who always obeys. A spiritual rebirth, this love that moves towards us is not someone who always obeys. It's living a perfect life. As if your sin disqualifies you from experiencing true spiritual rebirth. What is this? It is simply the desire to love God and love neighbor. That's what the love of Jesus does. It comes in, it makes us alive, and we begin to go... I think I do love God. I think I do love neighbor. It's not something that we conjured up within ourselves. It's something that God by his spirit has given to us. It makes us alive. And slowly, but surely, we will begin to love God more and more. Now you might be saying, like, big deal. So what? whoop de doo Like, I love God a little bit more and I love my neighbor a little bit more. What good is that? <laughs> Friends, you know that obedience to the law of God brings life. I'll just use this as an example. This is like such an easy example for, for, for me to explain to, to you of, of the blessings of, of being able to obey God's law. If you went out and say, like, killed somebody, thankfully our government would come and be like, yeah, you can't do that. And they'd put you in jail. And you'd live behind bars probably for the rest of your life. Life wouldn't be so good, wouldn't it? It would be terrible. You wouldn't be away from your family on Christmas. You wouldn't be able to see your children all the time. It would be miserable. We all get that. But this is what Jesus does in his life-giving love. He gives us the ability to more and more obey. That we might receive the blessings that come from obedience. Because indeed, to not kill your neighbor is a good thing. But to bless your neighbor is also a good thing. And this is the life-giving love that Jesus gives. It gives us the ability to love God more supremely and to love our neighbors ourselves. You see, this life-giving love is a beautiful gift. To obey is indeed to live a blessed life. But here's the thing about this life-giving love that Jesus gives. It's not just a spiritual reality for a blessing of us today. Where we grow in our sanctification and grow in our love of God and neighbor. It is actually a promise that we will one day walk and talk. And live again, just as Jesus walked and talked and lived again after his death. The life-giving love of Jesus brings about a great hope in us. Because he will come. 
And he will call the dead out of the grave. And he will give life again. Just as he gave us life at the very beginning. But here's the thing about this death, life. There will be no more death. And the life-giving love of God will reign eternally in us. See, the love of Jesus gives us life. That, my friends, is so significant. Is it floppy? <laughs> it is not. Is it sloppy? Not really. It's significant. It is light. I think the greatest problem in the church today is this. I'll tell you this, and I mean it. The greatest problem in the church today is a willingness to receive love. We are oftentimes confused as to what love is, though. We think love is floppy and sloppy, and therefore we commonly just say, I don't want any part of that. But the love of Jesus is neither floppy or sloppy. What we have seen today, just from three texts, is that the love of Jesus is gracious, it's significant. It's conditioned on Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection. It's significant. And that Jesus' love is propitious. It averts the wrath of God from us to him. And he bears upon himself that. And it's a love that is life-giving. This is not a floppy and sloppy love. And we must see it as a significant love. As a love that is full of light. And you see when we see it for what it is. We might be willing to say, well, that's a love I can get behind. Indeed, church, that is a love we should get behind. The love of Jesus is so significant. It is light. The question for you this morning is, will you receive it? Do not resist the urge of his love. It is profound. Receive it in your heart. Let it wash over you. And you too will have warmth from that light and comfort from that light. Let me pray. God, we, we see the love that you have put in your word. We see it. But allowing it to wash over us is another thing. A lot of us have this we don't really understand what love is all the time. We get mixed messages from the world. And we see it every once in a while in the scriptures. But the truth of your love is it is so profound and so significant. And so what I ask, O oh Lord, is that by your spirit, that you would reveal to us the truth of this love. That what was just taught would be true in all of our hearts. And that this truth would be rested upon. This truth would be received. And that we would indeed become lights in the midst of darkness. A people who have been covered by your grace. Covered by your mercy. And made alive with Christ. We pray that you would do this this morning. Amen.